Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. As we have done many times in the past, today is going to be the beginning of a multi-part sermon. Here at the conclusion of Galatians 6, we'll be looking at verses 11 to 18 in just a moment. So that means if you are here today, uh, we're only going to go through about verse 12, and then we're going to pause and come back and pick it up next week. So you're committing yourself to either come back or listen online to hear what comes next. But for now... We're going to read Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look now at verse 11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You bow your heads in prayer. Fathers, we do, almost every Sunday we come now and we ask your blessing on our time together uh, this morning in your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it week in and week out. And we, we pray and ask that you will speak to us through your word this morning, that you will convict us, challenge us, encourage us, whatever the case may be. You alone know the hearts of everyone in this room. You alone know what we need. And if you do not work, there's certainly nothing that I can say that will change a heart ever. So I pray that you will take your word this morning, bless it, use it, convict us, and make us more like Jesus through the preaching of it, we ask in his name. Amen. We are finally coming now to the end of Galatians, and as we approach the end of this letter, one of my biggest concerns for us going into this is that because it is the conclusion of a letter, we will kind of, uh, I don't know, tune out a little bit or begin to ignore it, because without question, the two most commonly uh, ignored, most least studied portions of any of the epistles has to be the introduction and the conclusion to those letters. And the reason for that, I would assume, is because they're, they tend to be very formulaic and repetitive in nature. Uh, they tend to have a lot of the same elements that come up again and again and again as you look through them. For example, uh, many of Paul's letters will begin something like this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and whoever else is with me, to so-and-so, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for you. I'm praying you. Now, here's what I want to talk about. Okay, that's kind of the general flow of one of Paul's introductions. If you are familiar with Paul's letters, you'll recognize that instantly as being the general general gist of how those go. The same is true often with his conclusions. They generally are going to follow a bit of a pattern. Uh, I'm writing to you like this or for this reason. Say hi to these people. Uh, here's a final challenge or thought, and then grace and peace to you. Amen. 
Okay, it kind of, again, follows that sort of general pattern. Uh, obviously, every letter is going to be a little bit different, but they do tend to have some of those formulaic elements, at least most of them do, which is why then they tend to get ignored. Because what's the point of studying something that you study maybe in Philippians when you're in Colossians or looking at something that you've read before? I mean, how many times can you study grace and peace to you, right? So you, you kind of just skim right over those things and don't even pay any attention to them. And again, I understand a little bit. Well, that is generally true of Paul's writings, but it's not universally true. And when we come to the letter of the Galatians here, we see that his introduction and conclusion are not the same as what you find in any of his other letters. You're already, I hope, in Galatians. Just turn back to chapter 1 for a moment, because we saw this a little over a year ago when we studied Paul's introduction to this letter, how he does incorporate some of those standard elements, but he also adds some things or does some things differently than you see anywhere else. For example, in verse 1, he starts off like he always does, Paul, an apostle, and then instantly he pauses to insert more comments about his apostleship than he does in any other letter. He says that his apostleship is not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Okay, that's a little unusual, right? He doesn't ever do that in any other letter of his. Okay, well, whatever, back to the standard opening. So Paul and apostle, all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. But then notice that instead of telling them how thankful he is for them and how he's been praying for them, which is his normal routine, the very first thing he does in verse 6 is say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I mean, it's like, boom. Not gonna, we're not, we're gonna dispense with all the normal pleasantries at this moment. We're gonna get right into the confrontation. Like right off the bat, I wanna hit you with the issue why I'm writing here, and it's because you you're deserting Jesus. And as you work more into the letter, as we did uh, over the past year, you begin to realize that even that little extra comment that he gave about his apostleship, that wasn't even random, right? That was because he was being attacked. And so he's defending his apostleship, even in the introduction to the letter. That's very unusual. It's not a standard Pauline opening. It is unique amongst all of Paul's letters. Well, guess what? Not only is his introduction unique, but his conclusion is unique as well. Uh, again, it has a few of the standard elements that you might find in other of his letters, but it also has some very unique features that we really need to spend some time working through in order to make sure we understand them. Now, we've come a long way to reach this point. Uh, the false teachers we know now uh, who have come to the city or to the region, excuse me, of Galatia, they have come with two basic points of argument. Number one is that Paul is not maybe the apostle that he claims to be. They're questioning his authority. They're questioning his uh, apostleship. And then number two, with that, that the gospel he preaches is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe it's not even true. He has been addressing those things throughout this letter. He has been defending those points throughout this letter. And now as we come to the end, as he begins to conclude, he comes back to both of those defenses one last time just to drive home the importance of a number of thoughts. But first, he begins with a personal comment here in verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. This is the opening of the conclusion, okay? The beginning of the end, you will, with a personal comment that you find similar things stated in other conclusions. But I just want to make a couple of observations here. First of all, let's just make sure that we understand Paul's normal um, 
method or practice when he's writing a letter. And I'm doing this, by the way, just in advance of telling you what we're going to look at, just to show you how you go about studying these kinds of things and how you go about answering these questions, because this will be helpful to you, I promise, in future studies. But, you know, based on what we see in the New Testament, it seems that Paul often employed, and here's your Scrabble word of the day, an amanuensis. I have a hard time saying this word, okay? An amanuensis, amanuensis. This person, it's, it's basically a mix between a scribe and a secretary. I'm just going to call him a secretary from here on out, okay? It's someone who goes around with Paul and basically just writes down whatever Paul tells him to write down. So picture Paul uh, and this person, the secretary, sitting in a room, and Paul's like, okay, I wanna, we're going to write a letter to the Galatians. Get, get your pen ready. Here we go. And he starts dictating to them. And, and, Paul, and the, the amanuensis, the secretary, begins writing it down. Uh, that's how it works. I can't tell you that Paul used one of these people with every letter that he wrote, but we know that he used them with a number of them. Uh, the clearest and most striking example of this is found in Romans chapter 16, verses 21 to 22. You pick up in 21, Paul is writing, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, so do Lucius and Jason, and so Sopater, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So in this particular case, you have a guy named Tertius who's sitting there and, you know, he's got the pen in hand and he's writing. You almost picture him like, hey, Paul. I picture him as like 15. Hey, Paul, can I also say hi? Paul's like, oh, sure, go ahead. Like, hi, Tertius. You know, like, that's kind of how I picture that scene playing out. You know, he's the one who's pinning it. He's the secretary. He's the omnibus. He's been writing everything Paul told him to write along the way, but now at the end, he wants to say something too, and Paul lets him insert his own personal greeting to the Romans right at the end of the letter. Um, you see this elsewhere, though maybe not that clear. Uh, at the end of several books, Paul makes a comment about writing a special sentence or something that makes it clear that it was his hand versus the other person's hand. I'll give you a couple of examples if you like to take notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21, Paul sort of interrupts the flow and says, I, write, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, indicating that maybe he hadn't been writing before, and now he's grabbed the pen and he put a sentence in to make sure that everybody knows you know, this is his letter. Uh, you see a similar statement in Colossians chapter 4. A very interesting one is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, where you read, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. And, and that's particularly interesting in the context of 2 Thessalonians, because if you know that book at all, the problem for the Thessalonian church is somebody had written a letter to them claiming to be Paul, telling them that the day of the Lord had already come, and so they're freaking out. And Paul's having now to write a letter back and say, no, 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 that wasn't mine. It's, you know, here's some truth you need to know to understand about the coming day of the Lord. You know, I, I get that you're concerned, but let me give you some information. And now here's your key for knowing when a letter actually comes from me. You're going to find this kind of sta a statement or a sentence in there that proves this is an authentic letter from me. And of course, you have this one in Galatians 6. I think Philemon has one as well. So there's a number of them through the New Testament. And what we're likely seeing in these moments are just the common practice of Paul. As he's traveling around, he's got this person with him. It might be different people with different letters. It doesn't matter. He's dictating to them. They're the ones pen in hand, putting pen to paper, scratching it out over there. Uh, but Paul, at the end, takes the pen, writes a sentence or two so they can see his handwriting, know the letter is genuinely from him, which kind of is funny to me because it must mean that Paul had some really unique handwriting. Maybe it was really good or really bad. Who knows? But some way that if you'd seen it before, you'd know that's Paul. Yep, I remember that handwriting. Uh, it's not a forgery. So that's just one thing to work through here. Uh, the second thing to think through is his comment here about writing with large letters. Uh, this is a bit unusual. He doesn't say this anywhere else, so what's the significance of this? Well, 
I'll give you the two most commonly repeated explanations first, and then I'll give you a third one as well, just again to help you think through how you process these kinds of moments when you're studying scripture. Uh, first, many people, and maybe I shouldn't say many, but a fair amount of people look at this and think that, well, maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, is actually bad eyesight. And so what you see here is him having to write with really large letters. It's like the large print version of Galatians, right? He's ready to write it really large because he can't see very well. Uh, that's what's going on here. Okay. Um, I can't say yay or nay to that. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I've never given him an eye test, so I can't tell if he's got good eyesight or bad eyesight. I have no way of knowing. Uh, I mean, in the context of 2 Corinthians 12, he does talk about receiving visions from God. So I guess you could view it as ironic that maybe God would strike his vision to kind of keep him humble. I don't know, but that's just conjecture. That's just making stuff up at this point. There's nothing in the context that would positively indicate that his thorn in the flesh is a need for reading glasses. So, you know, if that's why he's writing large letters here, maybe, I don't know, many people think so. I can neither confirm nor deny that for you. Second, there are a fair amount of people out there who think that Paul's comment here is a reflection of the personal injuries he sustained while he was engaged in ministry, as you read about in the book of Acts. For example, uh, the guy is shipwrecked. He's beaten numerous times, and most important to the context of Galatians, remember the time he was stoned? Now, earlier I misspoke and called Galatia a city. Galatia is not a city, it's a province. It's a Roman province in the middle of uh, Asia Minor. And we read about Paul's time in the Galatian province in Acts chapter 13 and 14. He visits four cities in Galatia during that time, and it's while he's in one of these, Lystra, that the Jews stone him, drag his body out of town, and leave him there thinking he's dead. Okay, so they, they, this, is, this is the event. Of course, he's not dead. He gets up. He, crazy enough, he goes back into the city, and then he continues on his journey the next day. Now, I don't know how much you know about stoning, but it's not that difficult of a concept. Okay, it's four easy steps to stoning. Step one, get a group of people. Step two, pick up rocks. Hopefully, baseball to softball size would probably be best. Uh, step three, form a circle around the person. Step four, throw the rocks at their head. Okay, that's it. You just learn how to stone someone. Don't do it. But you learn how now in four easy steps. In stoning a person dies of repeated blunt force trauma to the head. Okay, that's, that's the point of, of doing that to them. That Paul survives that moment is truly miraculous. Right? I mean, even the people who are doing it think he's dead. God clearly protected his life. But how much did God protect him from all of the other I don't know, effects of stoning. I mean, did God instantly heal his bleeding and cuts and cause the brute, you know, all the other things to go down? Or did God just spare his life and let him go on? So that's kind of the question. I mean, if you look down in verse 17 here in Galatians 6, you see him mention that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. Like he, if you want to see what Jesus has cost him, he can, you know, roll up his sleeves, take off his shirt, show you the impact that his ministry for Christ has had on his body so perhaps maybe is his eyesight one of those marks, a, a, an outcome of the injuries he received from being repeatedly hit in the head? Some people think so, and they use this as proof. If you study this out on your own, you would run, on, run into that. Again, is that possible? Sure. Can I tell you for sure that's what's going on here? No, I can neither confirm nor deny that, but that's a very, very common explanation. I'll give you a third one. Um, the first two are the most common. 
But the third one is no less possible, even though it is far less dramatic and far less interesting. And that is that he just writes in large letters to get their attention. That's not very exciting, you know. He just wants to make a point. And so he picks up the pen, and instead of writing in his normal size, he writes really big to get their attention. Um, not exciting, but a real possibility. In other words, this would be the ancient equivalent of, of texting in all caps right here. You know, this is when you send an email, and it's in 40-point font, bold, italicized, and underlined. When you click all three buttons, you know you're trying to make a point here, right? Um, I'm being a bit silly, but it really could be that simple. That even at that moment when he picks up the pen to kind of do a signature line here, he wants to make sure he's getting their attention in every way possible. I mean, that would fit very nicely with the overall context of the letter. So, so which three of these, which of these three is it? I have no idea. I would say to you though that when you're faced with a, a point of Bible study like this and you're trying to wrestle it out and you've got all these different people giving you different ideas, without clear biblical proof to push you down one of those maybe more dramatic routes, you should probably go with the least dramatic, least exciting answer as a general rule. Just as a thought for your Bible study, okay? When you find there, I know sometimes coming up with a big story about how he's got, you know, eye injuries is great. It might be true, but I don't know. I just go with the more simple one. That's what I'm going to do here. Uh, you'll have to decide for yourself. I think he's getting their attention, and having gotten their attention now, he begins to recap and summarize his main points from the letter. And he begins by telling us some things about the false teachers. First, we learn something new about their approach. Here in the middle of verse 12, Paul tells us that these teachers are trying to force the Galatians to be circumcised. Now, this is new information in a way, and in another way, it's not new at all. It's not surprising to us that that's the approach. Uh, but let's make sure that we're understanding this correctly. First, let's make sure we, we're not misunderstanding Paul when he says force here. I don't think we need to understand that as physical force, as if they're walking in people's houses, putting a, you know, a gun to them and saying, here, you better be circumcised or I'm going to kill you kind of thing. Uh, or as one of, one of the commentators like to read, imagined a group of uh, like, um, uh, mercenaries breaking into a home at night, tying someone up and taking them out of the city and, and circumcising them out of town against their will. Like, uh, no, that's, that's definitely not the case here. What we're talking about here is emotional, uh, theological, religious, communal, psychological, you can add in whatever words you want here, that kind of pressure, that kind of force. You know, I can, I can totally picture the false teachers just berating the Galatians with, Jesus isn't enough, you have to keep the law in order to be saved. You, you can't simply trust faith. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. And just pounding that home, I can picture them sitting down in people's homes, showing them every argument they can find from the Old Testament, from their culture, from their history, that Jesus isn't enough. I can see them trying to humiliate people and embarrass them into submission. And it's this kind of force that explains, I think, Paul's very forceful response you know, he's going he's gonna to fight fire with fire a bit because you are not going to find the force of the argument of Galatians in any other letter. Maybe like in a, a comment or two here and there, but not for the extended period we've seen it in this book. I mean, he is in attack mode throughout the book. I think he's fighting fire with fire. If they're going to bring force to bear on the Galatians, he's going to bring force to bear on them. These false teachers are not hoping to win the Galatians over to their position based on the attractiveness or reasonableness or truthfulness of their arguments. They're simply trying to bully them into it. 
any way they can, any possible method or means that'll get them there. They are attempting to, attempting to win them over by any means necessary, even force, thus the very unusual letter to the Galatians. But why are they doing it this way? Well, second, we're reminded of some things about their motivation. Uh, in verse 12 here, Paul gives us two reminders about why they're doing what they're doing. First, they're doing it because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. And I think Paul has a little bit of a, of a double meaning here by that phrase, a good showing in the flesh. On the one hand, it's definitely a reference to circumcision. You know, that's the context here, so there's no question about that. Uh, and in the mindset of these Jewish false teachers, getting these new Gentile converts circumcised, that is the goal. Because if you want to know if someone's following the law, you just got to you just got to look for the mark in the flesh, okay? It's that simple. So a good showing in the flesh makes sense in that way. On the other hand, though, I think it's also a reference to the whole spirit versus flesh discussion from chapter 5. Because pursuing the act of circumcision as a means of you being made right with God would be, I think, in Paul's mind, the epitome of what it means to walk by the power of the flesh. Because it's about you. It's about your obedience and your actions and what you're doing and how you're following the rules that you, you know, it's all about you. It's not walking in the spirit for sure because it is not living by faith. And in Paul's world here in Galatians, you either live by faith in the spirit or you live by flesh and law. It's one or the other. You're either going to live in the, in the new or you're going to live in the old. There's no middle ground here. There's no place where these camps overlap. You're either with the false teachers on the law flesh side or you're with Paul on the faith spirit side. And these false teachers are very much living in the old, very much living in the, the law flesh side, trying to find their acceptance before God based on what they do, based in their flesh. And Paul is reminding the Galatians of this basic motivation one more time. Second, he says they're doing it because they're afraid of persecution. See that at the end of verse 12, he says it directly. They would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And this, of course, flows out of the first motivation a bit. Um, to accept the cross for what it truly is, particularly for the Jews in Paul's day, is to recognize that your old system, your old plans for how you are going to be made right before the Father have come to an end. It forces you to admit that you cannot make a good showing in the flesh, and that's the problem. That there's, there's no way you can do anything to be acceptable to God or live acceptably before him on your own, that you need a substitute, you need a sacrifice. Wait a minute, maybe you need a savior. And then that savior is none other than this man, Jesus, who was crucified on the cross that Paul keeps talking about. So that's a lot to admit. That's a lot to accept, and it's going to have implications, especially for the Jews in Paul's day. It's going to lead to persecution. You know, we have a hard time, I think, wrapping our minds around that because I would imagine for the majority of people in this room, if not everyone, the day you put your faith in Christ and told your friends and family, you may have gotten a, like, congratulations? Like, <laughs> like, like good for you. I'm glad you found something that you like. I mean, who knows, depending on your family or your connections, what you receive, but I doubt many of us got any persecution. So we don't really relate to this, but, but imagine for a moment, you know, a Muslim in Indonesia, someone that the Kessners or farmers are working with, and they present the gospel to them. That person accepts the gospel, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. What things are going to now happen to that person because of that decision? Um, they're going to be cut off from their family, very likely. 
they're probably going to be cut off from their community. They could lose their job. They could get kicked out of town. They're definitely going to be harassed. Uh, they may even be killed. You can take all of that, what you would imagine, in, in the Indonesian context and, and import it here to a Jew in Paul's day who's coming to faith in Christ. We cut off, ostracized, harassed, maybe even, I mean, isn't that what Paul was doing? Paul was going out attacking. He's there when Stephen is stoned. He's the one who organizes the event, is all in favor of it. He, if you, you convert to, uh, to Christ, you switch to the gospel, uh, you're going you're gonna to feel some, some repercussions these false teachers don't want that kind of persecution, and so they reject the gospel of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, and they continue to cling to and teach the need, the necessity of keeping the law, and that is what's driving them, and Paul wants us to remember that. Now, we'll pause here for today and pick this back up next week, but I want to make two quick applications for us um, before we are done here out of what we see in verse 12. And I just want to address these two ideas of force and fear, as Paul has laid them out for us in this verse. You know, the false teachers we see here are trying to force the Galatians to be circumcised. They're doing it, again, emotionally, culturally, relationally, psychologically, religiously, whatever word you want to throw in here. It's that kind of forcing, that kind of pressure they're putting on them to try to get them to conform to a certain type of belief and a certain kind of practice. And as much as I would like to say that that kind of thing doesn't happen um, today, even in the church, that would be a complete and total lie. Because it does. Um, there are plenty of churches, plenty of believers, plenty of families even out there, whose basic approach to both Christian doctrine and Christian practice is to use force to try to get people to their desired end. And it doesn't matter, by the way, as I say this, if you think, you know, if, if it's good things they want them to believe or bad things, good things they want them to do or bad things. I, I, I'm not even focused on what it is. I'm focused on the approach right now. They, they think that you can force people into this. And so you'll have these people out there who will shame you, berate you, embarrass you, whatever it takes into believing what they believe and living how they live because that's ultimately what matters is that you end up at the right place. Whatever means you get there doesn't matter. I, I just would say to you um, that you need to be on guard against this. Both from the perspective of being a recipient of it, but also from the perspective of doing it. Because we all have a little bit of that tendency in us. Some of us may be more than others, but we all have a little bit of that. Parents, we feel that particularly strongly, I would imagine. You need to be a guard on that because if you ever see that kind of, of approach, either in someone else towards you or in you towards someone else, all kinds of like little warning lights and bells just start going off in your head that some things something's wrong in this situation, that this is how this is being handled. And whenever I run into that kind of approach, my first suspicion is that I assume that whatever it is they're being so forceful about is probably not thoroughly biblical. Now, that's not always true. I'm not saying it's across the board. I'm just saying that's my first assumption. When I see someone who's like, you know, two guns ablazing coming in on the topic, whatever the case may be, Something always tells me maybe they don't know quite as much as they pretend to know here in this particular moment. Of course, I could be wrong. I think that because, it, at least in my experience, it seems that when your beliefs and your practices are grounded firmly in the clear teaching of Scripture, you, you tend to feel a great deal of confidence and calm and settledness about that thing 
so that you don't really need to approach it with such force as other people do. Personally, and I know this is going to come across as being a bit proud, but I promise you I don't intend it that way, so stick with me to the end of it, and hopefully you'll understand what I'm doing here. But I find that I can be very patient and very calm with someone that, you know, who's maybe disagreeing with me or with whom I might disagree on a given subject. Um, you know, whatever the topic, whatever the practice is, as long as I know I'm right. Now, again, I don't mean that to sound proud. What I mean by that is simply, if I have genuinely taken the time to pour through God's word, to study it inside and out, to know this thing that we're talking about, that we're disagreeing on at this moment. I mean, I understand the, the positives and negatives, the questions I can't answer, the questions I can't answer. I, I understand the details. I know why other people come to it from the position. When I find that I'm at that at point in a conversation and you're like, someone else is like, and you're like all excited, I can be like, chill, man. Like, just chill. You know, we don't, I'm not trying to twist your arm into this. I'm going to present truth. I'm going to tell you what I believe, but I tend to be a lot calmer. And when, I, and when I'm less that, when I'm more, you know, like don't really know where I stand so much, I tend to find myself being a little more uptight, a little more ready to pounce in the little knowledge I do have versus the great deal of knowledge I don't have. Um, you know, do I, do I ask people questions in those moments? Sure. Do I challenge their thoughts? Absolutely. But I just would just would remind you that when you're dealing with people, whether it's your spouse, your children, your family members, your friends, people in your community group, people in the church, other believers elsewhere, and you find yourselves not coming to an agreement in those moments, you're not going to get anywhere by using force as an approach. I'm just going to tell you right now, because you can't make someone believe or do anything. Your job is not to make them believe or do anything, by the way. Your job is to present truth, to call them to repentance and right living, to confront sin when you see it, to, to encourage them to pursue Jesus. But in the end, never, ever, ever forget that only God changes hearts. Never forget that. You have a responsibility. It goes so far. But in the end, what are you going to do? Embarrass them into obedience? Guilt them into it? You might change behavior, but have you really affected the heart? And parents, there you go. And that's one for us to keep in mind too. And with our own children as we're dealing, and I'm not against, you know, altering behavior. Believe me, I think there's a place for that in parenting. But at the same time, we recognize that what we're ultimately going for, and I've said this repeatedly over the years, we're not going for altered behavior. I can't force my children to love Jesus. I cannot do that. All I can do is speak truth to them, talk to them, plead with them, pray for them. But ultimately, if God doesn't do the work, I, I can't do it. And I'm, I'm not responsible for it. I've done as much as I can do, and that's fine. So when you run into those moments, be patient, be kind, be clear, be biblical. Just don't try to force it. It won't work. I promise you. Finally, let me take just a moment to talk about the issue of fear, particularly fear of persecution because of the cross of Christ. And Chris touched on this a little bit last Sunday, so I don't need to address it as much today. I just want to remind us, though, out of what we see here in this passage, that the cross is offensive. It is offensive. True biblical Christianity is offensive because Jesus' claim, whether the claim is true or false, is an entirely different discussion. But just recognize that his claim is that he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's his claim. Jesus' claim is exclusivity. 
that there aren't many ways up the mountain to God, that there's one way and it's him. You don't come by me, there's nothing else. That's, that's Jesus' claim. So, so the, the claim of true biblical Christianity is offensive to so many people because there's no middle ground. We say to people, look, you either come in faith to Jesus, repenting of your sins, placing all of your hope and trust in him and no one else, or you're lost eternally. No wonder people don't like that. No wonder that's not a popular message that's you know, widely accepted by the world around us. And so if you stand up for the cross at your school, or at your workplace, or on your ship, or in your neighborhood or with your family, and for some of you, maybe even in your own home, no wonder you go through some persecution. Because nobody likes that. Nobody wants to hear that. Jesus is the only way. How arrogant are you? It's true or false. You can accept it or deny it. Pick one or the other. It doesn't matter. Don't, you can't be in the middle with Jesus, so pick one or the other, go one way or the other, make your decision and live with it. But, but you're not going to be popular if you go this route. If that's true for you and you've experienced in the persecution, I would encourage you with the same words Jordan read to us last Sunday from Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Take heart. They don't hate you. They hate Jesus. Don't fear. They can't kill you. They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. That's what Chris taught us last week. Keep it in perspective. Recognize the truth. Don't pull back. Don't hide. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the cross of Christ. For if you're persecuted for the gospel, then you have a promise you can cling to that you will be blessed and that great is your reward in heaven. Stand firm. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we come now and we thank you for your word. And I pray that you will take it and that you will use it. It is so easy for us. We're not in the Galatian context. We don't have false teachers that are trying to force us to follow something heretical, something that's another gospel, and yet we find in our own lives that we can be guilty of that same kind of approach, or sometimes we, we allow ourselves to be susceptible to it, and Lord, just help us to be on guard. Help us to recognize our role in the process of sanctification, particularly when we're interacting with other people, to, to call them to, to repentance, to, to speak truth to them, to love them, to pray for them, maybe to confront them, maybe to discipline them but also recognize the part that is not ours, and that's to change hearts. That's your work. So just help us to have the right perspective here. That's all we need here. Lord, we just need perspective. And I pray for our hearts as we go out into this world and we speak a very unpopular message, an offensive, exclusivistic message. It's either true or false, and people sometimes can't handle that, but Lord, I pray that we will do it with strength and with grace and with humility the message may be offensive, but we should not be. So help us to be loving and kind and humble even as we present an offensive message and give us grace when those moments come that we are persecuted. May we remember that we are blessed, we have promises, and that they ultimately don't hate us. They hate you. So Lord, we give ourselves to you. We give our time in, our, in your word this morning to you, and I ask that you use it, bless it, change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, 
please visit cbcvirginia.com.